Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. That work said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers, the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world-famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. How do you react when someone rejects you? Imagine if it happened all the time, most of the time, in fact. You get your hopes up, you invest your heart, and the answer is no. Would the accumulated negativity eventually affect how you view yourself? Would it deter you? This is what it's like to be an actor. Broadway veteran Stacia Fernandez knows the sting of being told, you're just not right, or we're going another way. Well, we're headed for a bench-facing 43rd Street in Manhattan. There's a feisty dog, a blaring siren, and an actress who's eager to cut through the noise and tell you how one moment of rejection changed her life. We're in New York uh, in a very creative interview spot. That's right. (laughs) Where did the desire to become an actor, where did that come from? Well, it's something that, as I think a lot of dreams do, I don't think I ever dreamt it until it happened to me. I was uh, conducting, I was a music education major at Georgia State University. Went to the University of Georgia and then transferred to Georgia State in Atlanta. And I was studying to be a band director, drums and the whole thing, writing halftime shows. And as a little sidebar, extracurricular activity while I was in school, I conducted the musicals occasionally for the drama department at the university. And I was conducting, oh, that's Manhattan. There you go. That's right, you can't avoid that. And a Broadway conductor just drove by and can't escape it. So I was conducting a production of West Side Story at my university and the leading actress who was playing Anita dropped out at the last second. And there was nobody in that building that knew that music or could even have stepped into that role but me. So I let my assistant conductor took over with the baton 
And I played Anita in that production of West Side Story. And it was supposed to be bad and an emergency patch. And they gave me an award for it. And something in me snapped. Now, something in you snapped I realized, during the performance? Yes. How did that feel? It was after the opening number. It was going through the process of learning that choreography in 48 hours, not really knowing what in the heck I was doing, and then getting in front of that audience. And the energy that was coming back at me was something I had never experienced before. And I knew that I had a way to relate to audiences, and I knew that I had a talent that I hadn't tapped into. And I'll tell you, when they handed me that statue, <laughs> it, I was hooked. And something about me said, I think I'd rather be on stage than under it in the pit. So it was, I guess you could say it was a combination of that feeling you had and the validation, right? That's exactly right. And right after that, I got asked to do another production at a small professional theater in Atlanta. And if I tell you one rolled into the other, I would be telling you the truth. And after about four and a half years of doing a small time theater in Atlanta, some bigger at the Alliance Theater, which is a big theater in Atlanta, everybody started telling me I had to move to New York. And I didn't want to. I, Why? Why did you not want to move to New York? I always thought I was one of those women in that generation. I just thought I was going to have children and raise them in Atlanta and possibly do that as a sideline at that point. You know, I thought that would be, it, it, yes, a profession, but not, not at the level that I've achieved at this point. Because after all, moving to New York is a big risk. It's a big risk. And it was probably scary, wasn't it? I went to my first big professional audition at the uh, Congress at the Congress Center in Atlanta, and it was for Cats, the national tour of Cats. No, the national tour and Broadway Cats. And I got a callback to play Grizabella, who's the lead cat who sings Memory. And so you didn't just go, Mamba? That's right. Memory. <laughs> and uh, they called me back and flew me to New York. And I was so afraid. I had never been to New York. I'd never seen a Broadway show. But I took the risk. But I was so scared I made them fly me back home on the same day. So I flew up, went onto the Winter Garden stage, sang Memory three times for the director and the casting directors and flew back home that night. <laughs> so you actually got through the entire song. I did. Three uh, times. Three times. Yeah, they directed me. They were very interested in me. And when I went back home, that fire was lit even hotter by the fact that they didn't give me that job. Because I've always, if nothing else, been tenacious. And don't ever tell me I can't do something. So what you're saying is the fact that you didn't get that job lit a fire inside you. It lit a fire in me. It lit a fire in me. And I took a risk. And I told everyone in my family and friends that I was coming up to New York for three weeks. 
And if I didn't have a job in three weeks, I would be back home. And people who live here and people in Atlanta laughed at me. Nobody gets a job in New York in three weeks. Well, in two weeks, I booked the first national tour of Jerome Robbins Broadway, which is unheard of. And, uh, and I knew I was onto something then, Keith. That, that was it. That was it. So within a year, I came back up here and uh, have done six national tours and uh, four national tours and six Broadway shows, a uh, couple of television shows, uh, Homeland. And I have sung a lot on albums. Uh, I've sung a lot on films for Disney, Frozen, Enchanted. And my career is so interesting to me because I never expected it. And I've always had the philosophy that if a door's open, walk through it because you can always turn around and walk back out and close the door behind you. So I just have spent the last 25 years in New York taking risks. And this, that's, as people will know, that's a big part of what this podcast is all about, the power of risk. What does it feel like to be on that stage and be in the moment and know you've got the audience taking this emotional ride with you. There is something that happens when you embody a character in a way that makes the audience lean forward. I think it sort of separates the men from the boys in our industry. And when it happens, when you've done all of the preparation, and you're in that moment and the audience is with you, there's a release that happens with that. A release that you know, even if you misstep, it's the character that's misstepping. It's a sense of freedom that I would imagine some people feel when they jump out of a plane. So that's what it feels like. It feels like all the stars have aligned and the preparation meets the opportunity and you can do no wrong. Now, when you're playing a character for a long time, like a national tour, um, do you ever get bored with it? Do you ever say, you know, I just don't have it today? Sure you say that. I did Mamma Mia on Broadway for five years. There were days. But... It usually happens before you hit the stage. Because once you hit the stage, the audience is a fourth element and you never know how they're gonna respond. You never know what joke is going to get a laugh. You never know what song is gonna elicit tears from the woman in the third row. So there's a chemistry that happens with the audience that does change every day. So that sort of helps you keep it completely fresh. And you're look, I'm sorry, you're no, looking no, through somebody else's eyes, too. You know, when you're playing a character, you're looking for something different in your scene partner every day. And they're not robots, so they're always going to give you a different clue. And you respond differently to clues and cues that they give you every single day. So it, it always changes and morphs. And it's kind of the beauty of live theater, too, that something could absolutely go wrong and it keeps you on your toes. It keeps your adrenaline going the whole time you're on stage. Let's flip back a second. Um, what was it in your background growing up in Georgia that uh, gave you this 
ability to take a risk, to come to New York, to say, you know, I'm going to make it. If I don't make it, there's so what? I think one of the things is that I'm the youngest of four women. And I wasn't the spoiled brat in my family like a lot of youngest children are. I was the, I was a little bit the unseen one in a lot of ways. So I was, that is a small dog trying to own Manhattan. Well, that dog has got a lot of fight in it. That dog's taking a risk because that, that is a six-pound dog <laughs> barking at a pit bull. <laughs> um, so I think some of that is that I, I had the need to be seen and seen as something different and something special. So I think adversity is why I t- took risks. And my father came from... Gary, Indiana, from a very impoverished family and struggled to make a success of himself. And he he ended up being uh, one of the vice presidents at Emory University. So my dad is, some would say I have his personality. What did you learn from your dad? That grit is more important than anything. That showing up and doing what you say you're going to do is one of the best characteristics anyone could have. That being the one who takes the responsibility seriously and makes sure things get done. And that communication is key. He taught us, it's a little old fashioned now, which is a shame to me, but he taught us that looking people in the eye and making sure that not only are you speaking, but you're listening is how you develop relationships. Right. Yeah. My dad's a he's, a, he's a tough guy, but he's a great guy. And he's still, you know, he's 89 now and still kicking and still teaching lessons. My sister asked me the other day, she said, you talked to dad? I said, I sure did. She said, what'd you learn? I said, well, we talked about World War II for 45 minutes. <laughs> you know, not a lot of hugs and kisses, but a lot of good information. What's the most important advice he's ever given you? It's an interesting thing about my father. I don't think he thought I had what I have. So his advice to me was, interestingly enough, things will come. But I don't think he really knew what I had. I don't think he knew what I had until about 20 years ago. And then I found out that my father was an aspiring professional actor in his youth. I never knew that. So some of this is genetic, but he never, he never told us that. He never told me that. I think with him and in his generation, it was more important for him to go get his uh, Ph.D. and be a, a professor and then a, an administrator in university. So that was something unfulfilled for him. Unfulfilled for him. That you're paying off. I am paying it off for him. And he tells me almost every time I talk to him. But it's not a family legacy because I honestly didn't know it till after I'd done my first Broadway show. And I think my mother told me. He didn't tell me. So there, there's something in us. So you get to New York and you get the, the first tour what does that validation do to you? 
How does it affect you? Some people say that deja vu is when you know you're on the right path. You know, the experience that you've been here before and this has happened to you before. And, and like I said, some people attribute that to knowing that you're on the right path. I'm going to skip forward to when I booked my first Broadway show. I had a marriage that wasn't so great. So unfortunately, we got divorced. And I bought a house in New Jersey. And the day I took a risk on that house because I couldn't afford it. Working actors, you know, that's come and go financially. But the day I closed on that house, I opened in my first Broadway show. That to me was like, I know I'm doing the right thing. That's how it feels. Everything just has lined up. And when I trust that I'm doing the right thing, things just have a tendency to just fall into place. And believe me, I've made a few burritos in my life, you know, taken a few restaurant jobs. But as I've gotten older and have realized that I'm doing the right thing and everything's falling into place, more and more things come into my path. I'm starting a business. I've written three plays. I'm jumping from a brand new musical to starring in a musical to another new musical that's supposed to be Broadway bound. I hope it is. It'll be my seventh Broadway show. I would love that. But I'm really enjoying myself. And, and that's what it feels like now. It feels like I'm doing the right thing. All of those risks paid off. Now, look, I know there are other paths for people. You can follow all kinds of arms to this crazy tree of life. You can follow many branches. I just like to follow the one that's the scariest. You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. Obviously, acting is one of those things that's it's so complex. Um, you have to have the talent, but you also have to have a certain look. Um, talk about that. Well, there's different looks for different types, of course. But there is, if you walked into a restaurant here in Manhattan, after you talk to me, you'll know every actor in the joint. <laughs> there's, especially those of us that have been around, we're sitting right in front of one of a subsidized housing, art, artist's housing in New York right now. Everybody in here knows what it takes, what kind of personality you have to have, how you walk into a room, how you dress. You have to keep yourself physically fit, emotionally fit, and you have to know your lane. You have to drive your own car. So if you're a character man, say, which usually if you think of a character man, he might be a really handsome guy, but he's usually a bigger guy, maybe losing his hair a little bit. I have a dear friend who is a character man and because of health reasons, uh, lost 125 pounds. Let me tell you something. That poor guy's not working anymore. He's not working anymore. He's, he's going to have to reinvent himself, which he will, which he will. But his job just fell away because there's little niches for all of us up here. And 
You know, you can't kid yourself. I That's been one of my problems, actually, that I'm a, a writer and I can dance a little bit, but I'm a little bit of a chameleon. And that becomes a problem because people want to know what you are when you walk in a room. I think that's true in a lot of professions, you know. That's just know thyself. And you've uh, been outspoken uh, about uh, the aging, what it's like for, for an actress to age. Well, how did you know that? Have you seen my web series? I have, I have checked you out. You have stalked me on the interweb? <laughs> yes. Getting older in public is a difficult thing. And um, I did. I did a web series about, uh, it was called Middle Stage, because my dear friend, and I, I probably shouldn't say her name, but she's uh, she was on Happy Days, the, the sitcom. And she told me, she's a Hollywood person, and she said, Stacia, when I turned phone 40, the phone stopped ringing. And it would ring and ring and ring and ring and ring and ring and ring. And then it stopped. Well, that's been many years ago. And now her phone's ringing again because she stepped into another <laughs> genre for herself. For me, it changed because I'm a leading, leading lady. I'm a, a leading player. And uh, as you get older, those roles become, especially for women, the roles become, they, they say there's 16 roles in every show versus one for every woman over 50. How about that? That's, that's some odds right there, which is why I started writing. That, that's, again, don't tell me what I can't do. I'll show you. I'll show you what I can do. I started writing plays for women of a certain age. <laughs> yes, I did. Tell so, me about one of them. Um, the play that I'm pushing up the hill right now is a three-woman play called The Loop. We have a, a fabulous actress named Judith Ivey, who's been doing the readings for us. And that play is sitting in the hands of the Roundabout Theater, which is here in Manhattan. And it's at the Alliance Theater and at a theater called ART up in Boston. We're hoping one of them will produce it for us. And it's a three-person play about uh, memory loss. And my writing partner and I wrote it because of uh, two family experiences that we had with someone who went through different, two different types of dementia. Um, it's a cruel disease. It is a cruel disease. And because people are living longer and possibly because of environmental reasons, it's becoming more and more prevalent. So we decided to write a play uh, and, and it's got a little bit of a fantasy bent to it. We, we definitely do some time traveling and turn the whole set on its end a few times, you know. But um, we're really excited about it. I'm actually going to see a play this evening, an off-Broadway play about a memory loss. So it's a popular topic, but I have to go stop the competition. <laughs> uh, what is it, uh, for those who don't know me, what does it take to get a play produced? And um, then, of course, the, the uh, home run, of course, is getting it on Broadway. But what does it take? Wonder of wonder, miracle of miracles, God took a play right by the hand. <laughs> I mean, it takes a miracle. I, I just told you that I have these three amazing theaters that have my play and a star at the helm. I still 
I couldn't tell you. I called three very dear friends of mine who are successful playwrights. Last summer, I was out of town working, and I said, what does it take? And they said to me, if we knew, we'd know. So the idea there, which is good for me, it takes a lot of tenacity and really a lot of divine intervention. You have to have the right person at the right time take an interest in the play when there's a slot in their season. It also takes a lot of money. And it takes a lot of money. Um, but I think we're on to something because we've found a very exciting young producer who's taken an interest in our play. And I think she might be more tenacious than I am. Is that possible? I do not know. <laughs> she will have to prove it to me. Um, let's talk about some of your, your favorite roles. If, if you had one, if you had to single out one role from your from your career, what would it be? There's been, a, um, can I, I'll say two really fast. Okay. The first one is when I did Swing on Broadway. This, it was a show called Swing and it was just like a cabaret. There were world-class dance couples in it, lots of tricks, high-flying acrobatics, and standard jazz music. And that felt like my world coming together from when I used to sing with jazz band in college, and I love a big band, you know, because of my instrumental music background. And to stand in the middle of that stage in a long gown and sing those standards, there was nothing like that. I just felt like every aspect of my life had come together. So that was number one. The second one was when I got to play the, there, there were two regional productions at the same time, but it was one of the two first regional productions of a show called Next to Normal, which I got to play this character named Diana, who is bipolar schizophrenic. And it's about her journey, uh, juggling the disease, her family, all of the medication she was taking and coming to some sense of acceptance with her disease. And it won a Tony on Broadway. And when I saw that musical on Broadway, I knew I would play that show someday. And I got to do that for six months at a, a theater. That was life-changing for me. Just the accomplishment of doing something that difficult emotionally and uh, vocally, it was difficult. And to really get a chance to sink my teeth into being that person. How, what do you have to go through to inhabit a character like that? Well, her, uh, Diana, it was, it, it was a lot. Uh, a lot of research, a lot of uh, talking to people who are suffering with bipolar disorder. I had, I was lucky because I had access to some people in the mental health community that helped me through it, talking about it. So there's a lot of research, just like you would for a paper, a master's thesis. It's a lot of pages of documents. And then you have to go pick some physicality out that matches who you are. Because what's important in any of these characters is to figure out a way that you're like that person. Because you don't want it to be fake, you want it to be real. So it was rough. It was really rough. And then I got completely off book, which means I learned the entire script and score before I set foot in rehearsal. And for five weeks, I just opened myself up to the family that was cast to play opposite me, to the director that was that hired me. And it's kind of like diving off a cliff. 
when you go out, do you allow yourself to make eye contact with anybody in the first couple of rows? Or Yes. Okay. Tell me about that. A lot of people don't, but I do it for a myriad of reasons. I wouldn't make eye contact with somebody in lock eyes, but I like to see who's in the audience. First of all, it, it takes the anxiety away because people are people. They're here to be entertained and I'm here to give them something. So it's a perfect marriage, but I, and I wanna see who I'm giving that thing to. Often I'll go peek out of the curtain before the show starts. Instead of doing it from the deck, from the, from the stage, yeah. I'll do it from backstage. But I also, I want them to know I'm real. I'm here. Yeah. I like doing that. And like I said, some people would frown on that, but I like doing it. When you, when you're getting ready to, when the curtain is getting ready to go up and you've got, I'm sure your heart's beating fast or whatever. I mean, what's going through your head? Are you... Are you just, are you so focused on your character that you don't get excited or do you still have the butterflies? Oh, I say, I teach a lot too. And I just say, prepare and then let it go. That book, The Inner Game of Tennis, a lot of musicians use it, actors use it. You over-prepare, you over focus on your technique and then you have to let it go. You have to sort of release to the knowledge that you're going to be okay. And if I think about it too much, I'm done. I can't, I can't think about it. I just have to breathe. I do a lot of deep breathing and a lot of self-soothing because it is nerve-wracking. It's They hooked uh, electrodes up to actors on opening night fighter pilots, high-rise construction workers, window washers to see what their cortisol level levels were and how their blood pressure spiked when they were doing their job. Actors on opening night on Broadway spiked the highest in fear and cortisol. How about that? How about that? <laughs> you know, the number one fear over death is public speaking. Right. So imagine doing that for a living. That's what we do. And I've, I've often said, I think I do have a little adrenaline addiction. I think you have to. I think I get a kick out of it. Every time? Every single time. Obviously, you're moving into to writing and producing and so forth. Um, at some point, you're not going to be able to do this anymore, right? Correct. Well, how do you think that's going to change you? I think when that time comes, I'll be okay with it. I've spent a great deal of time in the last five to six years setting up other things for myself to do. I don't think anybody should quit. I think when people stop doing something for passionate reasons or to help somebody else, life's over. So I'm not, I will never quit. But I think if the acting part of my life falls away, it's okay because I've achieved maybe not the level of success I was hoping for, but I came here later than a lot of kids come here at 18 and I was in my 20s when I came. But I feel like I've achieved enough that I feel good about it. 
and who knows, you know, who knows what the future holds. Look, a lot of Broadway plays have one or two old broads. I might just be that one. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see what the future holds. I, I'm so focused on working really, really, really hard till I'm 60. That's been my goal. It's what I've said. I'm, I'm building uh, beautiful s- stacks of things. I'm building potential. I'm constantly building potential. I thrive on it. I thrive on the creativity of it. And I thrive on the possibilities that come with it. And I'll never stop doing that. And what is, what is the creative part of your brain? What does that mean to your life, that creative side? When I'm not that, I know what it is when I'm not that. I feel unfulfilled. I feel lonely. I feel like I'm letting myself down. I feel like I'm not answering a call that rings on my phone every second of the day. So creativity for me is, it's a lifeline, you know. I don't suffer from depression, thank God. Many people do, but I do get down if I'm not doing it. It keeps my motor cranking. It is what cranks my tractor. Terrific, well, thanks very much. It's been my pleasure. I didn't know I was going to get to express myself this mightily sitting here on 43rd Street in Manhattan, but I really appreciate it. Much continued success. Thank you. We were a bit constricted on time with Stacia, and she was kind enough to indulge me for more conversation, this time away from the colorful Manhattan street notes. You know, it's so interesting because every failure feels just like that, like a failure. But if we won everything we were going after, we would stop. So, you know, it can be a real driver to keep you moving forward. Um, And not only that, you learn so much every time you fail. Like it's, it's an opportunity, you know, nobody should dwell on the the bad part of it, but the, the questions that you end up ultimately asking yourself in any of those situations, what would I do differently? How would I present myself differently? What can I do to make this more of something that might drive me forward? Like, those are all questions that come out of, you know, quote, losing something. And I, I just don't think, I think we have a real issue, uh, human beings in general, about failure and loss. Um, I think that it's, if you don't lose, you can't succeed. And I, I think I told you when I came uh, up to the city, the, the only reason I really moved here is because somebody told me I shouldn't. And the only reason I pursued this as acting as a career is because somebody told me I wasn't good enough. And, and I'm stubborn, too. You know, I'm like, you can't tell me what I can't do. So I turned around <laughs> and, you know, made the most of it. I teach a lot. I teach a lot of college students. Um, I do a mentor program every fall for eight weeks. And I tell those kids, you know, you're, for us, it's like a microcosm of failure and success because we go to multiple job interviews. We go to hundreds. Um, we have the, the great luck, actually, to practice 
what we do over and over and over for different eyes and different shows and different scenarios. And what we, what I teach my kids is that the act itself is a success. It's the outcome you have to let go of because you're constantly pushing forward and the only person you're competing with is yourself. So if you can just look at it that way, I think, you know, all failure leads to success. All failure is a success. It's a learning tool and it pushes you forward. Was there one part that you lost that just about killed you? Um, how long is this podcast? <laughs> yeah. How long you got there, Keith? Uh, so, so many. But I will tell you that this year alone, well, last year now, because it was it was in calendar year 2018, I lost two Broadway shows. So they were shows that I was convinced I was going to move on with and shows that I was uh, in the pocket of the director and good friends and giving, giving them the work they needed to happen. And then when the project went a little further, they just simply realized that the part I was doing should either be played by a person of a different ethnic background in one, one, one of these situations. And in the other situation, it went to somebody who just looked a little harder than me. You know, they just wanted a different look on stage. Um, so those are two huge career moves for me that just fell away, like a bridge just imploded. And um, I think what I learned from that about myself last year is that I'm doing really well in, in the rejection world because I knew something else would come along. And something else did, you know, that something else came and took its place. And I dove into it with my whole heart and soul. And, um, and it ended up being a, a great thing for me. I, it, and it's so difficult to know, but I always feel like what is for you will not pass you by. So those two jobs, who knows what kind of disappointment I would have felt in the room if I'd gotten those jobs. You know, I don't know. Maybe there was something about that that was going to be uncomfortable for me so that the jobs that I did get may not have been as high profile, but I sure had a great year. I played, you know, three major roles in regional theater and got to get treated like a star and really got to dive into my craft without too many um, New York, New York times the type eyes on what I was doing. So I, I got a lot better at what I do this year. When you had that first rejection that made you want to prove yourself, between that moment and now, has your attitude matured so that now you see it differently? And part of that is understanding that to a certain degree, it's a numbers game? Absolutely. It's a numbers game. I think, and it's, I do think perspective has a lot to do with how I'm feeling now at this place in my life. And it is a matter of maturity and, and actually just having some sort of, I'm far enough along the scale that I can look over my shoulder and see, see that it's the truth, see that there was always a net to catch me when, and not Funicello, by the way, there was always a net there to catch me. And there was always another job coming. 
You know, it, it, we we look towards these beacons for the word success, and we think that if we don't reach that goal, that one specific goal that we haven't succeeded, but the truth is there are lots of rungs on this ladder, you know, and uh, all of these other things brought their own gifts and their own um you know, extension arms of of success and joy and meeting new people. And there are all kinds of paths on that road to the top of the ladder. I know when I was a, a kid, I just didn't have the sophistication and the knowledge that would have taken me to the top. And when I look at it now, especially since I mentor kids, I know for a fact that when I came to New York, I came with the talent to shoot to the top. But I didn't have the wherewithal to know it. I wasn't mature enough. I didn't understand what it meant to get in a room and be powerful and own the talent that you have instead of being the good Southern girl and dismissing it and saying, no, 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 that's all right. You know, I didn't understand that I should have walked in there with power and strength. So who's to say that if I had achieved that, quote, success when I was a young woman, that I would have been ready to handle it? I think I was saved from a, saved from myself in a way by taking the circuitous route that I have to to my own success, even if I it's not accompanied with the you know, a Tony Award or an Emmy Award. I've put in a really long, good body of work and just gotten better and better at what I do. So so I'm okay with that. How does your perspective translate to someone listening who's not an actor, doesn't deal with the kind of rejection you face on a daily basis, but is profoundly wounded when they fail? and they don't know how to handle it. Well, I think it's really important for everybody, and I think this would do a lot to salve a lot of wounds that cross um, political barriers, racial barriers, age barriers, all of the barriers that we seem to be so content with setting up in our society right now. But I think one thing that we should all know is that we're all the same. We're more alike then we are different. So just because I'm an actor who works on Broadway, I love my dogs. I love my family. (laughs) I love, you know, I like to live a comfortable life. I like to laugh. I like to see my friends. I think we're all the same. And I think we all feel rejection and we all feel pain. And I think it's the human condition to want to be seen and acknowledged and understood. So so I think that's something that we can all understand is that we all feel those pains and those tweaks and those those aches when we don't get what we think we deserve. But the truth is everybody on earth learns from the hurdles they cross. So rejection is really a state of mind. It's really it's a learned response to not getting what you think you want. But the truth is you don't know what you want until you have it. (laughs) So even if you think you want that 
CEO job in the corporation, you know, that you've thought about, if you don't have it, how do you know? How do you know you want it? You could get in there and six weeks later be the most miserable person on earth. So I think the, the sameness of us, of, of us all is that we get into these situations, we make the most of them when they're presented to us. And only then can we tell if it's something we truly want. I think sometimes all of us hold on to our desires and our wants, and we get in a situation that we think we want it. Oh, this is it. I'm finally here. And we drive ourselves in that situation, even if we're miserable, because the picture of it is what we thought we wanted. So we end up holding on too long. Don't you think that's something that we all do? I think actors do that. I think teachers do that. I think doctors do that. I think being malleable and being able to put yourself in a new situation and be just as joyful and just as hardworking, like that's success to me. And who's to say you could go to 16 interviews, just like I go to 16 auditions. You could be looking for an internship or a position in a corporation, and you go to 16 interviews and you're feeling defeated. And I'll never get it. It'll never happen for me. But if you can stay focused and happy about where you are, that 17th interview is going to be yours. So I think it's all, it's just a mind game. It's all a mind game. Life is a roller coaster. Thanks to Lane McGibbony and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life. And audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You too can become an American achiever.